This is episode 13 of Talking With, Brian Lamb's conversation with historian Richard Norton Smith. It starts after this. 68. We're 50 years beyond 1968. Yeah. Why are you interested in 68? Well, you know, we're about to embark upon all sorts of um, uh, commemorations, some mostly for commercial reasons. Um, you know, <laughs> we'll see lots of familiar television clips, lots of celebrations of television by television. Um, and that's not what I'm interested in. The fact is, first of all, to people who lived through it and were sentient enough to, to appreciate the revolutionary history that they were living, um, there's a natural human tendency 50 years later to reflect on those events, um, to, to rethink conclusions that you might have made at the time, to measure their significance or what you thought was their significance against, you know, intervening events, to, to see what, if anything, about then is directly relevant to or foreshadowing now. I mean, then and now is a, is a large part of it. How have you changed your attitude about 1968 in the last 50 years? I'm not sure I have a lot. I think um, I know a lot more now. For example, the Rockefeller book, I, I, I know a lot more now about that campaign and about the campaign generally. I think, um, I think the Wallace candidacy in 1968, the third party, Southern, you know, unabashedly racist uh, campaign, turns out not to be an aberration, not to be a freak show that was the uh, exclusive creation of one man, uh, the governor of Alabama, uh, who, you know, for whatever reason, struck a particular chord at a particular time. Uh, In other words, I'd pay less attention to George Wallace as an individual, and I would see much, I would pay much more attention to what it was about George Wallace's movement and the emotions that he tapped into and their relevance, their direct relevance to our subsequent history, and I would argue our contemporary history. I mean, I I think there are some real all-too-familiar elements in Wallace's appeal and even in Wallace's style. But more important, again, I don't want to... The question about what I've learned about 68, it's to pay less attention to the individual's and more attention to the movements, um, the emotions that they aroused. I remember Tom Gerald on ABC, because uh, I'm sure it was a bulletin, and the news came that, uh, that Dr. King had been shot in Memphis. And it's strange that we've talked about this before. I mean, I have a very keen awareness now, more than I did at the time, 
that the civil rights movement, which after all, you know, I didn't ever directly participate in, and yet I felt vicariously a great emotional connection to it. I mean, I remember vividly the March on Washington. And, um, and I remember the pictures from Birmingham. And there was a sense, you know, even in a, in a child, I was nine years old at the time, uh, you knew what was right and what was wrong. And you, and you, and you identified um, strongly with, um, with King and what he was trying to do. Um, and I, you know, I had this obviously very childish but emerging appreciation of at least how important history was. When he was shot, you were nine? I, no, no, no. Yeah. This in, in Birmingham in 63. So <clears throat> in, by, by, I was uh, 14. And in you were in high school. And, and at least, I certainly at least knew that this was a major historical event. And um, What about Bobby Kennedy? Same Yeah, year. which, of course, followed just, just two months later. And, and then, of course, you know, th- that's the thing about 68. Any one of these individual events could stand out and define a year. But when they all happened... In, in quick succession. It's almost a blur that um, unthinkable things were happening with regularity. And the American political system seemed to be under a stress that, um, you know, you, you couldn't imagine. You certainly had never seen before. McCarthyism had posed challenges, but, but this, was, this was, you know, top to bottom. What about Vietnam? Well, and that was and that was inseparable. That's the thing. All of this became caught up. This great dreadful stew of 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 illegitimacy and popular unrest and um, and um, extra constitutional actions, um, assassinations. I mean, if there was ever a time to despair. Of, of the future of popular government, 1968 could very well have been it. And, and that gets, again, the value, if you will. Fifty years later, there are lots of people, and I'm one of them, who worry about the course of American democracy and, um, and above all, the long-term consequences of dispensing with factual truth, measurable truth, as the standard by which a democracy decides, um, and it and it becomes, and particularly as you get older too, I think as you get older you become prey to uh, it's a it's a strange kind of virulent kind of nostalgia. Uh, that, that doesn't necessarily hold things were better then, but implies that things are are more vulnerable now. That um, you know, I <laughs> I have a, a school of thought which um, is um, uniquely my own, I guess. Um, I I'm convinced it's uh, it's nature's way of 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 making all of us 
more or less accept the aging process. Uh, uh, We all read about people who are comfortable with, indeed enamored of, the change that is going on around them. You know, they're ahead of every trend. Um, They welcome every technological advance. Um, All of that. And I'm just just the opposite. Um, And I am convinced that there is an element. It's not articulated very well, and I'm afraid I can't articulate it very well. But I think one becomes so alienated from the prevailing culture, which seems the opposite of humanistic, Um, a culture whose standards, however you measure them, seem to be in decline, Uh, a culture where the universal definition of truth is itself under constant attack, a culture in which technology and above all, greed, commercial greed, are eroding anything like a cohesive, common, shared culture. Do you know your own IQ? I knew what it was in the ninth grade. I had a wonderful story. It was wonderful. The woman who made high school bearable <clears throat> for me, um, we've talked about, uh, the, the was the librarian. Her name was Laura Conley. And uh, she, uh, she uh, provided protection and encouragement um, she you know the day General de Gaulle died we had you know we had mourning in the, in the library we uh, we had rallies against uh, G. Harold Carswell um, who was who was a who was a <laughs> deservedly obscure and forgotten nominee for the Supreme Court in 1970 uh, by, by President Nixon um she, it's not so much that she actively encouraged my interests in an environment that was perhaps hostile to to them. She provided a refuge. And um, anyway, um, she, as a <laughs> token of her, of the, the lengths to which she would go. We were given IQ tests in the ninth grade. God knows why. Because they, they kept the results. They didn't share the results. So she broke into the... Uh, wow. <laughs> Late one night. She broke into the uh, room where they were kept and rifled the files and, and found mine and, uh, and one other person who was in her... Her coterie. Uh, I don't think it's fair for me to ask you what it was, although you can give it the the number on it. But is it high? Uh, yeah, it was uh, one forty nine, <clears throat> which is reasonably high. You could, could you be Mensa on that? Oh, one? I have no idea. See, <laughs> don't get me started, <laughs> please. You know, he's self appointed. <laughs> self appointed. Talk about elitists. <laughs> you know, there's elitism. There's going to be a basis for elitism, <laughs> and IQ. I'm I'm sorry, IQ doesn't make it. Presidents, least prepared person to become president. (sighs) 
And I'm not looking necessarily for a vice president that automatically became president. Yeah, no, no, I understand. Um, Aside from the incumbent? um, You don't think he was prepared? No. And And it's not because of resume. I think it's because of temperament and uh, personal qualities. Um, Who else? It's 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 when and, and again you have to define prepared. I mean I think preparation for any for any job means that you know you you understand the culture that you're getting into. You you have some basic ideas, some criteria. Um, of what's necessary in order to succeed. You know, you have some combination of personal qualities that um, will will um, advance uh, your leadership and your agenda. Um, you know, I mean, pretty basic, basic things. Um, Zachary Taylor was a man who had never voted. He was a general, soldier, and and a good one. And a good man. And I would argue in some ways, between Jackson and Lincoln, he was um, probably the most uh, courageous of American presidents. In a, President at w- what years? Uh, 18, what, yeah. 1849, 1850. He had a very short presidency, died in the summer of 1850. Um, and that gets complicated because, <laughs> see, he, here's where the nuance comes in. I admire Zachary Taylor for his courage in making it very clear that even though he was a southern slaveholder, he would not hesitate, Jackson-like, to march into the South with as many troops as it took to put down any attempt at breaking up the Union. That's gutsy. That's brave. Now, then the question becomes, but is it politically wise? Taylor opposed, or made it pretty clear, that he opposed what basically what we know is the Missouri Compromise. Taylor wanted, for example, to bring California pronto into the Union as a free state. Taylor was, despite being a slaveholder, um, pretty quickly uh, disillusioned his southern supporters, with the the degree of loyalty he showed, not only to the Union as a concept, after all, he'd worn its uniform, um, defended its interests, but but his uh, seeming disregard for many of the more extreme southern uh, positions. Okay. He died in July 1850. What happened as a result? His vice president, Millard Fillmore, a man otherwise known mostly for being obscure, uh, takes his place. Millard Fillmore matters for one reason. Millard Fillmore is willing to support the Compromise of 1850 um, with with all of its, including its dreadful Fugitive Slave Act. Um, and why is that important? Because it forestalls, it buys 10 years for the North to develop its industrial might, its railroad system, its war-making capacity, 
and also it buys 10 years for the emergence of an obscure one-term congressman from Illinois named Lincoln. So you look at the long view of history, Millard Fillmore, who we've all written off as a the quintessential non-entity, turns out, well, watch what he's looking at history. One way is, what if that person had never existed? Imagine American history without Millard Fillmore. Well, at first you'd laugh and say no one would notice. It's impossible they'd notice profoundly. So I admire Taylor for his moral courage, and I admire Fillmore for his political pragmatism. And you can say, who had the longer vision? Who's the luckiest president in history? <laughs> Ronald Reagan was pretty lucky. I mean, Ronald Reagan demonstrated, put it this way, Ronald Reagan earned his luck. Ronald, Ronald Reagan demonstrated that luck is is almost invariably part of a really successful presidency. Um, now, you could argue he was very unlucky to be shot. You could argue that he was lucky to survive. Did he, you ever his, talk to him about being shot? I did. I, it was... Um, I'll never forget the um, the last time I saw him. It was um, uh, early in 1996. This was over a year after the Alzheimer's letter had been written and published. But he would continue to come up to the library. I was then director of the Reagan Library in Simi Valley, California. And the president would come up from time to time and... Um, and quite frankly, uh, you know, uh, if you did not know, um, and, I, and I guess this is often true of patients, particularly in the early stages of the disease, he, you know, he seemed very much himself, a little hard of hearing, um, and sometimes a little bit detached, but, but you know, very, very, you know, very much involved in the conversation and, and, um, and very aware of the people around him. And I mean, you can imagine people were up there visiting, and they looked over the shoulder, and they saw Ronald Reagan. Well, he was st still the performer, anyway. But he was a storyteller. I always said, I mean, the the way to measure the progress of Ronald Reagan's disease was the repertoire of stories diminished. Okay, so this was uh, the staff knew this was probably going to be the last time that we were together, and they were they were decent enough, and I'm, I'm forever grateful. We were going to lunch with the president. It was about a 10-mile ride. And they said, well, get in the back seat with the president. I know he'd like to talk with you. So so we were talking on the way over. And, you know, what propels you to say things? I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure if it happened again, I'd ask. But I was curious. And, um, and I never heard anyone else ask him. So I said, I hope you don't mind, Mr. President, but I'd really be interested to know... Um, what it felt like to be shot. And, you know, without any pause, he answers and he starts describing it. And I realized after a couple minutes, he was not talking about the day John Hinckley shot him outside the Washington Hilton. He was talking about the movies. 
than what it was like to be shot in an old Hollywood Western. Well, of course, remember, his hard of hearing problem was a result of, of a gun, supposedly, of a gun going off, you know, very close to his ear. But anyway, that's, he was, he was reliving Hollywood. And I think what happened as the disease progressed, he never told a lot of, wash, of White House stories, at least in my experience. He went on occasion. But what he, he liked to tell Hollywood stories, and he loved to tell Dixon, Illinois stories. And above all, his favorite story was talking about his days as a lifeguard when he saved 77 lives, you know, in seven years. And I've often thought that, and in fact, I even heard some evidence to to support this, that it was probably the last story he told. Richard Norton Smith is an American historian and author. You can listen to more interviews with him by searching his name in the video library at cspan.org.